Hello, everyone, and welcome to Human-Centered Security. Today, I have with me Patricia Ensworth. Patricia is a business anthropologist whose work focuses on the human factors affecting the development and maintenance of innovative products, services, and systems. As a technology project manager at leading global financial services firms, places like Merrill Lynch, Moody's, UBS, she came to specialize in risk analysis and quality assurance, often recently in relation to cybersecurity vulnerabilities. Her consulting firm, HarborLight Management Services, provides organizational research and management training to clients in a broad range of industries, as well as government agencies and nonprofits. She is the author of The Accidental Project Manager, Surviving the Transition from Techie to Manager, and numerous technical articles about multicultural teamwork and software engineering. She's also an adjunct assistant professor teaching in a graduate business degree program at NYU. So thanks, Patricia, for joining me. I am really excited to talk to you. Two things in your bio are super interesting to me, human factors, right? And the, the fact that you're an anthropologist. So welcome and thank you again. Well, thank you, Heidi. I'm delighted to be here. I have a very interesting focus for the podcast and uh, an interesting audience. To get us started, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. You know, what led you into security? I know you focus on a lot of things, but what, what, how did you get into security? Well, uh, I, I'm essentially a, a project and program manager, uh, was trained as an anthropologist. Um, and just to be clear, uh, my, my security practice uh, is really organizational. Um, I identify elements of organizational culture and engineering processes, which can cause security vulnerabilities in products and services and systems and uh, advise uh, organizations on the collaborative solutions they can uh, develop you know for emerging issues as, as we know security is an ever ever moving target but i i started my career um, in um, uh, leading up to security uh, basically, uh, working in a call center on a help desk um, after graduate school and uh, was trying to figure out what to do with my anthropology degree. Uh, it turned out that I was especially good at documenting uh, weird user behaviors. And um, you know, when I would uh, show them to developers, um, the reaction was often, oh, nobody would do that. Uh, that's just stupid. They're wrong. <laughs> And so it was the uh, early recognition that um, you know, users are not stupid, they just sometimes think differently. So I spent uh, some years as a tester and then a test manager uh, developing scenarios for cross-cultural misunderstandings um, in the use of software and error conditions. Um, and this is before the uh, internet was widely um, uh, adopted by business. And at that point, security was a relatively well-contained issue. It was uh, one among many of the quality issues that we would be testing for. Um, after the arrival of the internet, there was, of course, a, a, a boom of offshore outsourcing, and there was an explosion of uh, security problems uh, where I was working. You, know, you had hackers, you had organized crime, you had hostile nations. So out of this came a whole new body of knowledge uh, and set of tools and jobs. Um, there was a growing awareness that the organization's own structures and customs could play 
an important role in uh, the level of protection for users and the kind of defenses that uh, they mounted for their uh, infrastructure. And uh, in particular, uh, it became um, uh, well known uh, that uh, there was a, a, something called Conway's Law. Maybe some of your uh, listeners are, are familiar with this. This was developed by Melvin Conway in the 1960s. But it says um, that any organization that designs a system that will produce a design whose structure is a copy of the organization's communication structure. So the software you build uh, mirrors the organization you have. And it was at that point that my world uh, morphed from just testing uh, and test management to more of uh, risk analysis and quality assurance and security became a huge part of uh, what we were doing. Um, my first official cybersecurity project uh, happened about 10 years ago. It was the first um, instance disclosed outside of the intelligence community of uh, cyber warfare attack. This was a Chinese state-sponsored attack on uh, Google uh, and about 20 other organizations, uh, which uh, became a, a national security um, threat at that point. Uh, and I was at that point hired by Morgan Stanley to lead what was being called Operation Aurora uh, to uh, fix, fix the problems and make, make them safer. Um, and ever since then, uh, cybersecurity has been uh, a fairly large part of my uh, research and consulting and, uh, and training activities. Wow. <laughs> I did not know that. That is amazing. So... Actually, a lot of things you said were amazing. The first, the first piece about starting off at the help desk, I think that's super interesting. Um, I can imagine that that would be a plethora of knowledge of just how people, you know, just regular folks use the systems and how much information you could glean from that. So that that I think is really awesome. But you know, going back to then transitioning to, like you said, you know, before the internet, uh, security was kind of a self-contained thing, but then the internet introduces, you know, all of these different vulnerabilities. And then the last thing you said that, you know, the fact that you were working with Morgan Stanley to address this issue, this, this thing that had happened, um, you know, what exactly did they call you in to do? Like, what was your role in that project? Well, I was uh, hired by the uh, director of IT security, reporting to the manager of uh, vulnerability management, an interesting title, which I'd never heard of before then. Um, but I was, I was a program manager and uh, was uh, supervising a number of different projects and components to um, essentially clean up the malware that had uh, infected the systems. And uh, to take a look at uh, more holistically the organizational processes and engineering uh, practices that had uh, enabled uh, these uh, uh, hackers and state-sponsored um, you know, uh, enemies to uh, to penetrate. That's so interesting. I'll probably have you go into more detail about that in just a second. But the first thing that I wanted you to do was to define anthropology for listeners who might not know the discipline as well as you do. Sure. Um, anthropology is, uh, well, it's a social science. It's uh, the study of human beings in our environment. And um, it originated, uh, I might say, in the age of exploration when Europeans first uh, ventured 
uh, across the seas and encountered um, uh, cultures that were very different from their own. Uh, and it grew tremendously, uh, partly because of the growth of whaling uh, as an industry and also colonial uh, occupation. So there was an era in the 19th uh, century when uh, colonial powers often um, employed anthropologists as translators and mediators to deal with the so-called native populations. Um, in the middle of the 20th century, when colonialism was fading and there was an increasing recognition that there were some uh, racist power structures underlying uh, the discipline, the, sh the uh, focus shifted to a more kind of diffuse and um, and idiosyncratic communities, you know, you might say tribes in quotes. So you, know, you might be studying rock climbers or you might be studying uh, you know, uh, disabled veterans or you might be studying business organizations, uh, organizational behaviors and practices. Um, within anthropology, there are four fields of training. There's archaeology, uh, there's physical anthropology, which is uh, the study of evolution and the interaction of human beings with their material environment, linguistics, and cultural anthropology. Uh, cultural anthropology is uh, most often associated with ethnography, where uh, you study uh, communities' beliefs and customs. Uh, you have the kind of image of the lone missionary walking into the jungle, uh, but um, observing rather than uh, uh, you know, proselytizing. And the, uh, if, you, if you had to reduce it to a, a slogan, you might say that anthropology is about making the strange familiar and the familiar strange. Um, so trying to understand the perspective of an other. Um, I think I want to clarify, ethnography is a term that is widely used uh, in you know, user experience design, uh, marketing, uh, organizational research, even, even social work. Um, in, uh, if you hire an anthropologist to do ethnography, that person will draw upon that four field training uh, in uh, the work that they do. So, you know, for example, if you were uh, researching a security breach, you know, you would take a look uh, at the artifacts that uh, were available that the organization had been using that led up to the breach. You would look at the uh, material environment. You'd look at the layout of the offices. And also nowadays, you know, when people are working from home, that's a very important part of the material and environment. Um, you look at the language that people use, the, uh, the jargon, uh, the taxonomies. And of course, you would uh, you would do the ethnography to study the beliefs and customs of the people who were uh, involved in it. So oh, you, in that context, uh, what you might explore uh, as an ethnographer would be the official and unofficial structures of power and influence. Uh, so within an organization, there's an official org chart, but of course, uh, there are people who are influential, uh, people who are uh, go-to experts who may not appear very high on the org chart. So we'd wanna know about that. We'd, we'd wanna know about the communication networks <clears throat> that are not visible through network tracking and analysis. Um, there's a very interesting, um, and, and well-known case study in the anthropology world of uh, Xerox repair problems. This goes back a few years, but uh, the Xerox 
Palo Alto Research Center <clears throat> was called in to figure out why uh, copy machines were having such uh, uh, quality problems and malfunctioning a lot. Uh, and it turned out that the solution was found by uh, anthropologists, Sean Sidley uh, Brown and Julian Orr, by uh, hanging out at diners with the repair people who would discuss uh, the problems. Uh, none of this appeared in the official documentation, uh, but it's an example of how you know, participant observation and, and hanging around uh, can help identify the really important communication networks and how information is, uh, is uh, passed along. Um, another thing you might study as an ethnographer is uh, gift exchange. Um, you know, relationships are created and sustained through gift giving. In an organization, those gifts might uh, be information, inside information, uh, gossip. They might be lending people resources, lending people uh, equipment. Uh, and these sorts of gift exchanges create trust relationships. You know, you uh, quickly figure out who trusts whom and why. And in the context of security, uh, when things come up and uh, people are put under pressure, sometimes they break the rules. Sometimes they do it only with people they trust. And uh, it's important to understand those circumstances. So we find out about that through through storytelling. Uh, you know, we ask people to tell us stories about uh, well, what was the worst uh, security incident that you've known of in the past two years. And through those stories, we find out the characters, we find out the motives, uh, we find out the why things happened behind the what things happen. So we figure out you know, how the problems persist, why they persist, and, and why people don't always follow those rules that they know are right. So that's in a nutshell, you know, what anthropology is about and how we would apply it in an organization. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, coming from a UX background, when you said, you know, it's not just understanding what, it's understanding why, like that really resonated with me and I think will resonate with any UX folks listening to the podcast without understanding why something happened or is happening, you can't really fix it, right? Absolutely, <laughs> <can't>. yeah. <laughs> and what you're describing, you know, anthropology and ethnography probably goes even deeper than I think a lot of what UX researchers like myself are often able to do. There are often constraints, you know, time and resources where it may, or COVID, right, that makes mm -hmm. it really difficult to get in front of the people who are, in my case, using the product or, you know, in the organization, you know, we haven't seen our coworkers in a long time, many of us. So it's difficult to do that type of research. I was actually thinking today, like, I'm thrilled that now I can actually get out in the field and like, see people and I just feel like it just makes my job a lot easier when I am able to be in front of people, you know, in context where they work just helps you design better products. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I'm going off on a tangent here, but I, like I said, I, I find that super, super interesting and there's just tons of parallels with the UX community. One thing that I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into is risk management and, and risk analysis. 
when we talked before, you mentioned that risk analysis is a state of mind. Um, and you said, what, you know, what are the processes or the tools that we're going to use that we're going to put in place when we get surprised? I was hoping that you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. I think, you know, anthropology is a set of, um, of research methods um, and, uh, you know, can uh, be very useful even, even at a distance, even in the digital environment. The uh, risk analysis and quality assurance are, are what you do with the data, you know, that you gather uh, during your uh, research process. Um, so risk analysis uh, starts with the uh, assumption that um, the future is uncertain. And so we need to uh, think about those, those threats and opportunities. And a lot of what risk analysts do uh, is similar to um, what uh, is done in user experience research. You know, the scenario planning with personas, uh, you know, some techniques borrowed from futures thinking, uh, and then some more engineering uh, type um, uh, methods such as, you know, failure mode and effect analysis. Uh, it, so it starts with the user experience process, but it does take it a few steps further, you know, thinking about uh, when we're surprised, you know, when something unexpected happens, whether it's a threat or an opportunity. Um, how's the organization going to react? Uh, not just the development team or the end users, but you know, looking out across the organization and uh, also up and down of the, uh, the flow of data, uh, incoming and outgoing, as well as uh, relationships with suppliers and third parties. So uh, what we want to think about is, you know, when that happens, uh, you know, what sort of tools and processes and resources do we have available uh, that we can use to respond? Um, and uh, what procedures are we going to put in place, you know, in these kind of break the glass situations? Uh, we uh, do this sort of process continuously uh, on most projects, at least quarterly, uh, and uh, and come up with um, you know a matrix of uh, of problems and and solutions. One thing that comes to mind initially is that when we're building products, and I'm assuming that this is similar when you're building systems for an organization to be more secure, is that we're not really given a ton of time to to really think through some of these scenarios. I feel like we're rushed to get things out the door. We're rushed to meet deadlines. And we're just like, okay, well, if you had given me enough time, like I probably, you know, we, we might have thought about, thought through some of the scenarios. Um, I don't know if you, I guess that's not really a question, but maybe you have some suggestions for people who are practitioners who are like, well, we just don't have the time to like think through this stuff. Yeah, I, I, I hear you and I, I, I have been there myself. Um, I think, you know, one of the considerations that um, comes into play for user experience researchers, for designers, developers, even testers, um, is the project management methodology that is being used. Uh, the agile project management methodology, uh, which you know, embraces change and uh, is good for uh, making sure that you know you are satisfying your your customers and users um, on a regular basis, is is good at many things, um, but it tends to handle these uncertainties and risks um, uh, within an iteration or within a smaller development cycle, and so. 
particularly now, particularly when we're thinking about um, questions of cybersecurity, uh, it is appropriate to step back and ask, um, is the Agile methodology uh, the most secure and um, effective uh, for our current goals? Uh, sometimes um, agile teams uh, deal with this by having a sprint zero in which you know these issues of uncertainty and uh, risk are addressed. Um, other times uh, when security becomes uh, a priority, uh, then more waterfall type project management methodologies uh, are are called upon uh, to put the iterations and sprints and you know within a larger framework and with that framework, uh, it becomes easier to ask for the time you need. Um, in that kind of shift within an organization, it's rare that a development team or a product team can make it happen on your own. Uh, you need a more senior management support, and you often need to create um, alliances and cross-disciplinary um, uh, coalitions, if you will, with other areas of the organization that you might not have uh, habitually interacted with, you know, like legal and compliance or vendor management or internal audit. Uh, these are all your allies uh, when it comes to uh, bargaining for more time to deal with risk. Yeah, those are that's a really great suggestion. Um, instead of trying to like, instead of just trying you're butting heads with like your teammates or your product manager who wants to do this sprint process is, you know, doing this agile process and you just know that you don't have enough time, you know, maybe talk to the risk management folks at the organization and you'll probably hear a different tune. Yeah, those are great suggestions. I'm wondering if it if it's something like when you're first starting a project or you're thinking about a new feature you know, is one of the first steps that you need to take thinking about like, how could this be not just used, but misused, right? And like, how are we going to mitigate that risk? Um, you know, or is it like just something that is not piled on, but just added to some of the research artifacts that we create Anyway, we, you mentioned personas, which are a proxy for a group of users, you know, kind of adding on this, this risk management, uh, risk analysis label to personas or to user journeys or, you know, whatever other artifacts they're creating to just help the team understand, like, yeah, we thought about all the great things that this could do, but here are also some of the other things that maybe you haven't considered that are part of security and that we need to be aware of and, and think through to ensure that this product is going to be safe for end users, you know, that it's not going to compromise our system, um, that we've accounted for all of these different things people could do either maliciously or not, you know, that sort of thing. So curious mm -hmm. if you have any thoughts on like how a UX practitioner might be able to do this. Well, I think you've, you've identified uh, a number of the questions that need to be asked, and um, it, it is a, a mindset. It's, it's also a, a kind of choreography, um, whether it's at the beginning of a, a brand new project or at the beginning of an iteration. And it really it is a, a, a responsibility that belongs to either the project manager in a more traditional waterfall kind of environment or to 
the product owner uh, in an agile environment. And the, um, the assumption is that when you have a new product or service uh, that uh, you're working on, there's a point at which people fall in love with it, right? And um, imagine only good things about the future. And, and risk analysis uh, encourages people to say, okay, you know, it's kind of like your, your best friend starts dating somebody and, you know, is, is totally head over heels. You're, you as the friender are really um, in a quandary. You, you don't want to throw cold water on this new budding relationship, but you do want to point out like, okay, this person has, you know, uh, a big pack stack of unpaid bills and has broken up with their, you know, last six boyfriends or girlfriends. So anyway, that's, that's the kind of approach you want to take to risk analysis. You're the friend of the project. Um, there are a number of techniques that uh, even agile teams use. You know, there is uh, uh, a, a pre-mortem that uh, is often done where you get the team members to um, sit down and individually write uh, a futures planning uh, exercise where you ask each person to imagine, okay, it's a year after deployment um, and you have one scenario that's uh, things went even better than we expected. Um, Another scenario, it's a complete disaster. Uh, third scenario is uh, it, it re was released, but it took a completely different turn from what we originally committed to. And it's fine, but it's really different. So you get people to write this and then you pass these along to other team members and then a different team member writes why that happened. So imagines the root causes of all of these uh, uncertainties. And this gets uh, people thinking um, about a, a more holistic um, environment in which you know, this, this product or service can be used. I wanted to recommend uh, a, a book that was recently published. It's called uh, Rethinking Users. And uh, I believe it's Mike Youngblood and Ben Cheslock. And it, it talks about some of the questions that you just uh, identified. You know, who are the secondary users? Who are the uh, governing users and so forth? So it, uh, it can help UX uh, designers and researchers ask those questions. This is something that just has been on my mind. Um, I recently read a book by Ira Winkler. Uh, he's a cybersecurity expert. Uh, it's called You Can Stop Stupid. And it's, it's a comprehensive resource. It's basically saying that, you know, there are, if you look at this, if you look at this problem holistically, you know, and and think about, you know, the people, the processes, uh, the technology, um, there there is a way to make things more secure. But you have to look at it from this like system systems mindset. You have to look at it holistically. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what I was trying to get at before is that within an organization we are trying to design systems that first, you know, first we have to make people aware of what they're allowed to do, uh, what they're permitted to do, you know, how they should do it. Um, so awareness. And then, you know, there's also the part of the system that you're designing to kind of corral users and like kind of encourage them to do the right thing, like just through the design of the system. And then you have all of these mitigating controls in place, right? So if the phishing email does get through, you know, what sort of things do you have maybe from a technical perspective in place that doesn't allow the 
for example, the malware to be installed on the system or, you know, to get beyond that person's computer. So it's thinking through like all of these different aspects of the system, thinking about the people, thinking about the processes and thinking about the technology and like how those all interrelate so that, you know, you, you build more secure systems. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, that uh, raises a question we, we had talked a little bit about, you know, the, uh, uh, the corollary of uh, risk analysis is quality assurance. You know, risk analysis uh, identifies uh, possible uncertainties and you know, proactive and reactive responses to them. Um, quality assurance is uh, the follow-up, uh, and um, it's it's a really important part of uh, the the process of uh, of improving security. You know, and and essentially what quality assurance does is it asks, you know, what standards does this product or service or system need to meet? Um, you know, how are we going to measure uh, those uh, uh, standards, whether they're being met, and and who verifies it? Who who um, who approves uh, what is going on. Um, so when you are performing risk analysis, you, you are essentially broadening the range of stakeholders uh, that a UX team or a, a product development team might um, be interacting with. And uh, once you've got that broader range, once you have you know, sort of more interdisciplinary teams or even outside uh, suppliers on your team, then, uh, then the quality assurance is what facilitates the work of uh, those interdisciplinary teams in establishing and man maintaining those standards. Right, because now we now we know what the standard is, and now we can measure against that. Did we achieve the standard? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes, and I think again, here's something that you know user experience uh, professionals. Uh, and uh, and even cybersecurity professionals, you know, could benefit from uh, more uh, awareness of some of the longstanding and well-established quality assurance uh, tools and methods to uh, to make this happen. Yeah, can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, sure. I think you know what we're we're looking at is a way of creating not only. Uh, uh, a set of processes within a team or within a, a, an organization, but uh, creating a communities of, of practice uh, that bring the organization together and its and its suppliers. So, for example, you know some of the tools in in quality assurance that are effective are um, you know, the root cause analysis using what uh, sometimes called a fishbone diagram or an Ishikawa diagram which is a great way of exploring the multiple factors that can lead to a problem that has already occurred uh, without um, assigning blame. It's, it's kind of a blame-free uh, discussion of what, what, could, what could have been involved in this uh, situation. Uh, Pareto charts uh, that help uh, an organization prioritize. You know, you can't ever be 100% risk-free. Uh, you can't ever be 100% uh, you know, perfect, but uh, you do need to focus your efforts uh, in areas that have the greatest impact. So Pareto charts are good for that. Um, process flow charts with swim lanes for different roles, different departments, uh, different vendors, uh, showing who is doing what and as a way of 
of understanding if perhaps there is one area of the organization or one person that is overburdened uh, with responsibilities and uh, making sure that um, the resources are deployed realistically and appropriately. I think one of my favorites uh, is uh, retrospectives, uh, the lessons learned. Uh, and I, I want to recommend uh, an article that I came across recently. It's about retrospectives at Netflix. Uh, and it was in the uh, May issue of the uh, Association for Computing Machinery uh, uh, magazine. It's called Beyond the Fix-It Treadmill. Uh, I think we've all been on that fix-it treadmill. You know, you just find problems and uh, keep on uh, putting band-aids on them. Well, this is a good way of using retrospectives to get at those root causes. So quality assurance uh, establishes a framework in the organization and a mindset for, I'm not gonna call it continuous improvement, uh, but continuous adaptation. And I think um, adaptation is really important because you know, as we know, the, the threat landscape changes constantly. There's always new uh, malware and new attack vectors that uh, people are coming up with. But it uh, establishes the, um, the principle that uh, we, we need to always be adjusting our behavior uh, within the organization. We need to be talking to each other across silos, across departments, uh, and, um, and, and, and putting to rest some rivalries and, and grudges that organizations always have, uh, they've been around for a while, and, and coming together and educating people about the importance of doing this. Really, in order for security to be successful, it has to be a cross-disciplinary endeavor, right? Like if, <laughs> and I think that is becoming more apparent because like if security isn't built in, then we're just going to fail. And for it to be built in, then the UX person, the engineer, the product and project managers, like everyone has to be thinking about it. Otherwise, it's not going to be built in. It's just, that's just the way yeah. it works. Yeah. And I think just to put it in a more industrial context, um, there was a, a period of time when airplanes uh, crashed much more frequently than they do now. Uh, and uh, the studies of safety culture uh, within the aviation industry highlight some things that could be lessons for us. Uh, one uh, element that I think was important was that uh, the concept of, of blame uh, and uh, accountability needs to be reexamined. And what I mean by that is that um, at one point, it, it was uh, considered uh, shameful if you were a pilot, if you were almost in an accident, you know, if you had a close call. So people kind of covered that up. Um, and then incentives were put in place for uh, pilots to be rewarded for reporting those close calls uh, and documenting them and sharing them. And the assumption was that most pilots were uh, responsible and well-trained and uh, had uh, adequate skills. So there were things in the environment that uh, were contributing factors to these close calls. And it really helped turn around uh, the aviation industry in terms of the number of plane crashes that, uh, that occurred. So I, I think when we are looking at security within organizations, um, if you are a researcher, you know, if you are conducting research into security problems and vulnerabilities, two things are important. One is the ability to do your research um, anonymously uh, so that people report things, their names don't always get attached to them, you know, if, uh, if they, they are reporting troublesome issues. 
um, and confidentiality. You know that um, that what you what you are doing will be uh, confidential, except in the case of you know patterns that need to be uh, addressed. So uh, you have to establish that trust within the organization for people to share uh, information about things that may be happening uh, that are insecure. When you are uh, trying to find out very specific um, insecure behaviors, is the um, ethnographer, the researcher, as as a trusted consultant coming in? You know, so if it's very very specific situations, like okay, when customer X. Uh, calls in and says they have a deadline and we need why, and it's really not allowed to provide that. But of course, we have to in order to keep this business. Um, if you have somebody telling you a story about that and knowing that, um, you know, the researcher will preserve that uh, confidentiality and anonymity, then you often get uh, uh, very detailed um, descriptions of uh, security vulnerabilities. Yeah, that's a great suggestion too. Well, we're at the end of our time. This was so interesting. I feel like I only scratched the surface of, you know, some of the things that you know, and I learned a ton. Do you have any parting words or advice to our listeners? Well, just thinking about uh, uh, moving forward from where we are now, I, I want to thank you for asking some really, really insightful questions and making me think. So that, that's always a pleasure. Um, so a, a few a few ideas uh, from an organizational uh, perspective. I think we talked a little bit earlier about investing in upgrading uh, internal systems is going to be uh, very important in uh, in the months ahead. Um, at the level of of the management of IT security, I think uh, there is um, evolving now from Carnegie Mellon's Software Engineering Institute uh, a new cybersecurity maturity model. Uh, this is comparable to the capability maturity model that they developed for the Department of Defense uh, in the early 80s at the point where um, uh, IT architecture was moving from mainframes to client server and there were a whole lot of problems uh, related to that. So the capability maturity model uh, did a great deal to um, improve the reliability and quality of systems. I think the cybersecurity maturity model has that potential. It is also backed by the Department of Defense. So um, I think that uh, IT security organizations could look at that and also think about uh, who you're assigning to the security uh, functions on, on teams. Um, some organizations uh, don't always assign the most uh, well-trained and um, authoritative people to these security roles. And by that, I mean, they're people who are easily bullied by other members of the organization. So it's up to uh, managers of IT to make sure that the people who are responsible for uh, monitoring security have the support and the training that they need to do a good job. And then for uh, user experience researchers and designers, um, particularly those with uh, Scrum Master or other kinds of agile training, I would encourage people to look into uh, training in more formal project management methods. I know the project management body of knowledge that leads to the project management professional certification. Um, this is not something that one would use probably every day, but it it would enable people on agile teams to talk more persuasively to uh, others in the organization who come from a more formal risk management background. 
So those, those are some of the things I, I might suggest. Thank you. That's extremely helpful. So um, Patricia's company is called Harbor Light Management, and I'll include a link to harborlightmanagement.com. Is there anything, any other uh, things that you would like to promote? Uh, no, I'm happy to uh, help people improve their security and organizational processes. Um, I think uh, the program that I teach at, at New York University is, is great. Uh, it's a master's degree in project management uh, and happy to hear from any of your listeners with questions. The, the email would be info at harborlightmanagement.com. Thank you again, Patricia. This was hugely insightful. I really, really appreciate you speaking to me and to our audience. Well, thank you, Heidi. And uh, I uh, wish you happy solstice since it's the middle of the summer already. Oh, yes. <laughs> thank you.